episode 13 of After the Breach, a podcast for whale enthusiasts. We are your hosts, Jeff Friedman and Sarah Shimazu, joining you from Friday Harbor, Washington. We are professional whale watch captains and guides with Maya's Legacy Whale Watching here in Friday Harbor, and today we are joined by Monica Whelan-Shields from Orca Behavior Institute. We're going to follow up on our conversation from last episode about, that we had on type D killer whales and their low genetic diversity by talking about another paper on this topic, but this one focused on populations in the Northeast Pacific region, including the populations we see here, Southern Resonant Killer Whales and Biggs Killer Whales. But before that, we're going to get into some of the latest sightings that we've had out here because it has been absolutely incredible. Uh, hi, Sarah. Hi, Monica. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Hey. It's going great. Um, we've had some incredible sightings. Uh, let's kick this off. Uh, Sarah, if you want to talk a little bit about, we had an all-day tour last weekend on Sunday and had a, a very large group of big killer whales, including a new baby. Yeah, yeah. We um, got up north, way far north. I think, Jeff, we decided it was our second longest trek north for an all-day trip um, and found 19 Big killer whales up there. And I think originally the report was two. The original report from the ferry, <laughs> there was a report from the BC ferry of two killer whales that quickly multiplied into 19. Yeah. Impressive how they multiply. <laughs> but I mean, that's kind of the theme with this population. Um, so yeah, a great, great group with the T36As, the T124As, T125A, T128, the list goes on. T124C, T49A1. And the T65 Bs, of course, can't forget them. Yeah, so we we've talked about the 65 As quite a bit on our on our podcast. Uh, this is the 65 Bs, so it's 65 As sister, 65 B, and her now three kids. Yeah, brand new calf. Well, not brand brand new, but new to us. Um, yeah, first time being seen was that that day. So that was awesome. It was. I was really impressed that that uh, you and and. And April, we're able to spot the new calf in the mix <laughs> of 19 killer whales all bunched together. And you're like, I think the 65 bees are here, and I think there's a new calf. Well, it was it was really little compared to all the other littles. But uh, I think what was cool was in that group of 19 whales, we had five whales that were two, you know, two or younger. Uh, so more than 25% of that group was under the age of, you know, three, you know, two and a half or, or less. Which, which is becoming more common in when we see these big groups of, of multiple families. There's so many young uh, killer whales in, in the bigs population that when you see these aggregations of, of multiple families, you're, you're going to have a large percentage of them under, you know, under the age of 10 for sure. Yeah. Yep. yeah I think it's like a third of the population the coastal crazy. population is under the age of 10. It's amazing. Monica, you you put out a graphic that I would love to share in our, our show notes about the number of Biggs killer whales under the age of 10 um, versus southern resident killer whales, uh, the endangered fish-eating killer whales. Um, and it's when you see it in a graphic, it's, it's really impressive. Yeah. I mean, we kind of talk about the numbers, but the visuals is remarkable for sure. And the fact that we have almost twice as many big killer whales under the age of 10 as we have southern resident killer whales. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable what's happening in their in their population. Yeah. And and the big groups, you know, we've just seen more and more big groups. Like I I know, you know, 10 years ago we were kind of seeing like, you know, between 3 and 5 and 
Now, it's not uncommon. I, I mean, Monica, you probably agree. Like when we get a report 10 years ago, if we got a report of a big group of killer whales, it was like automatically going to be Southern residents. And now it's like, well, which one is it? Absolutely. <laughs> it could be either. I know it, that was a big tell before, right? Like if somebody saw just a couple of killer whales, it was almost always bigs. And if they saw 15 plus killer whales, we assumed residents. And now it's funny. It's actually often the opposite. It's the reports of one or two killer whales make me think sometimes are spread out Southern residents foraging mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, so you really can't go off the numbers at all anymore. No, no, not at all. And it, I mean, it's been an amazing spring. We have had J pod sightings, um, you know, here and there, they've been spending a lot more time up north, but we have have had some sightings down here uh, and down in, in Puget Sound uh, and then all the way up to to Campbell River. Um, but it has been an amazing spring. I mean, we're seeing killer whales on uh, well over 80% of, of our tours, and we're seeing them sometimes when we're out on the water, not on a tour. <laughs> uh, I think you two have some great stories to share from last night. Uh, just right outside of Friday Harbor. Well, it was a great whale day all around, Jeff, because you had some pretty amazing sightings in the morning. Uh, yes, we did ha- did have a really interesting trip uh, in the morning. We were with uh, the T-46s and T-46Bs, and um, you know another new baby uh, in that group, T-46B7. Uh, unfortunately, T-46, uh, has not been seen, uh, the last few days that, that the 46 and 46 P's have been around. Uh, so I think it's, it's probably safe to assume she is no longer, um, well, I mean, we'll, we'll hold out hope, well, right? Yeah. We haven't seen the 46 B ones, but yeah, typically she's seen with, I mean, there, you never know, right? You never know. She could be with the, the B ones, but, uh, you know. Definitely uh, not typical to, to right. not see her there uh, with with that part of the family. Um, but it, it was an interesting trip because it was in the exact same location that we saw them uh, a few years ago when uh, it was the first sighting of the um, 46Bs, uh, B1s, where um, Taluk was no longer present. And exact same spot. Uh, I wouldn't say similar behavior, but both trips, like you, you just got a sense that there was something going on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they were they were very social uh, yesterday, and they didn't move. They were in the same location pretty much all day. Uh, a lot of socializing going on uh, in in the family, and uh, yeah, we'll definitely hold out hope for for T forty six, but. Regardless, uh, what a legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking about this on the boat yesterday about uh, we have some some power families in the big <laughs> killer whale population um, that you have, uh, you know, a, a female that leaves this legacy of so many whales. Um, yeah. And I think there's others that have, you know, extended families, T124, you know, that, that kind of line itself but i don't know of any other one that kind of like strikes me as much as t46 does like i yeah i just i got a little teary when i heard she wasn't there the other day but um you know even with like all the other families that have these extensive extensive groups um none hit quite so hard as t46 i think i think part of that 
is probably the fact that she was uh, captured uh, for the marine park industry and released before she was removed from a, a sea pen uh, down in, in Puget Sound. And that we can trace, I think it's 23 whales that we, that we can, somewhere around there, it's in the 20s, that, we, that can be traced back to her that wouldn't exist uh, had she gone into a, a marine park. And with other with these other power families, I don't know that you can. It doesn't hit the same, I think, because it it's not that same backstory. Right. Right. Yeah, she's definitely legendary for being the last living whale from the last live capture in Washington State back in 1976. And she's a whale that I point to all the time as what difference a single reproductive female mm-hmm. can make if she's successful. And just to be clear, she herself doesn't have 20 or so offspring. Right. Right. <laughs> She has, you know, multiple sons and daughters, and her daughters have been successful in now four generations. Yeah, she's a great-grandmother. Um, great-grandmother, yeah. So, you know, I, I point to her as an example when we're talking about the Southern residents and potential hope for their future, that, you know, you have one or two females like that that are that reproductively successful and have that many, you know, reproductive descendants, and it can it can change things around for the population. Yeah. Absolutely, and we'll probably get to this later, too, because the the flip side of that and I was talking about this on the on the boat on our tour yesterday the other side of that is you look at all the whales that were captured and all the especially the the female killer whales that were removed uh, from these waters and how many whales that could have been mm-hmm. uh, from just one or two of those whales that had they not been captured how many more offspring and grand offspring and great grandkids there there could have been yeah it's very much uh, a part of the ongoing story of the southern residents and it plays into the the inbreeding research as well the the captures and the the animals that were removed yeah we'll we will definitely get into that and can't wait to hear uh your your take on that on that paper monica um but i can't let let the last night's story go because i wasn't there when you two had the the stellar sea lion hunt going on right, right in front of the harbor, and there was a, a young young whale in that one of our yeah. our yeah. our new growing favorite young whales. And kind of speaking of deja vu, like to you having this experience with the forty sixes and forty six bs in the same spot that they were after Taluk, um, you know, was no longer with them. Uh, we had a very similar encounter on August thirty first last year, Monica. You were out there. We were a different boat last time, but. Um, it was the same families in the same spot hunting a stellar sea lion and Galliano breached three times and it was kind of windy. Like <laughs> the coveted Galliano breach. Yeah. Yeah. So we had the, the T-18s and the T-49As um, without T-49A1 and E2 last night, right outside of Friday Harbor. And unlike last year's sea lion hunt, which was successful after less than an hour, these guys were uh, giving this sea lion a hard time for, I think, at least four hours across all the different people that were observing it. And as of sunset last night, uh, sea lion was still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think it started, it started before we got off the dock uh, about four thirty, and at eight thirty, I think it was still going strong from what some people still on the water were saying. Um, but cr- it was, yeah, it was cool. It was very interesting hunt. Like I think we both agree, like probably training some of the younger animals, T49A4 and T49A5 seemed to take a big part in, um kind of the main assault i guess um but it was periods of like activity and then they would like call a timeout 
like break, catch each other's breath, and then go back in for it. That was that was amazing to witness, where the whales were like clearly almost resting at the surface, and the sea lion kind of catching its breath too. And then somebody, you know, waved the flag, and it was it was go time again. <laughs> and I don't, there's some kind of mutual understanding of what the rules of engagement are in that, right? Like, the sea lion didn't try to make a break for it. Then um, yeah. it was just everybody paused, and then everybody resumed. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. I thought for sure, like when those kayakers came in, oh, <laughs> I was I was a little worried. I was a little worried that like the sea lion was going to see that kayak and try to like make a break for it. I was I was nervous at that moment as well. Yeah, but it did not. It it sounds incredible. And uh, where was Charlie in all this? Right in the middle of it. Really? Not not very effective, but right in the middle of it. Well, maybe he was. Maybe he or she was effective. Um. Well, if you asked. T49A6, I think he or she would say they were the one calling the shots and yeah. giving the sea lion a run for its money there. Uh, yeah, that little one was right in the thick of it the entire time. Some yeah. other whales kind of came in and out mm-hmm. of the the sort of the main engagement, but uh, yeah, yeah, lots of tail slapping and little half breaches and that kind of thing. That's incredible. And I, I did see your your photo of uh, both your photos of the of Galliano breaching and uh we'll post post that in the show notes that is uh a very coveted shot it was a loud one too i think you (sighs) mentioned that in your in your photo caption monica but yeah when he hits the water any uh any adult male breach is an epic sight to behold but yeah t19b seems to be a particularly coveted one but that the sound of that and i think it had to do in part he had his pecs which are yes massive he had them completely splayed out to the side and so the sound of those hitting the water i mean it was it was like being right underneath a fireworks show yeah yeah the male pec fins are i mean they're they're huge I, what what's the size i mean to me they look like it's the size of a queen bed <laughs> i think they can get like six feet like six feet and you know, cross or long long or yeah, they're almost square in some cases, you know? Yeah. I mean, incredible. It must've been, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's even still going on right out. (laughs) I looked, I went down and had a cup of coffee this morning and I kind of like, I was wondering if anyone checked this morning. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, yeah. I wonder if the sea lion is, is just like, man, I hate being part of these training sessions. (laughs) Well, I made the comment on the boat. If, if nine, Big killer whales came up to me as a sea lion. I would say, like, just take me now. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't, don't know, drag it out this long. I don't know if I want to engage for four hours with that type of. Uh, or like, ha- I would have a heart attack. Like, no, I, I was, I would it, die of fright. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, well, and uh, I think it was last week we had the two Alaskan boys traveling with the one thirty sevens up uh, Sansom Narrows, and we saw two unsuccessful sea lion hunts yeah. where. But in this case, they were, it was, well, one, one was probably about 30 to 45 minutes. And then the sea lion ended up on getting off out of the water onto a beach. Uh, and they moved on to another sea lion and I don't, it was maybe 10 minutes and they, they just, they moved. were tired. Yeah. <laughs> they just moved on. Um, not, not something, you know, usually in, in my experience of seeing them, they're usually successful. Yeah. Um, but obviously they're a lot. I think that we don't see. I think T49A and T19 have some stamina. Like no kidding. They, they were they were the two females that yeah. appeared to be in there with the juveniles the, the entire whole time. time. And they were at least I think helping to keep the sea lion corralled, but right. 
Well, and T eighteen is no slouch. No, no. Uh, a, f- a few years ago, I think this is probably three or four years ago now. Um, there was a Minky chase with T sixty five B. With T sixty five B and T eighteen were the two yep. in in front uh, that almost caught up to the Minky, and and it was T eighteen I think who was the lead whale. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, she's uh, she's got some stamina for for. Uh, for her age. Yeah. You, know, you might think the adult males are the key ones when they're taking down these larger prey items, right? But like in last in last night's hunt, the larger the three oldest males were mostly on the periphery. Just like being like, I'm hungry, hurry it up. Yeah, there there was a lot of surface activity, peck slaps, tail slaps, those three breaches. Yeah. Um, it seemed like they were ready for dinner, but I feel like that's kind of not typical, but typical. Like I you know, in these in these hunts, I often see like the males kind of hang out on the outskirts, and the females doing female and young younger whales doing a lot of the work. Yeah, I think I think that's right. From what what I've seen, um, it's usually the the older females that are are in the middle of it, and the a lot of times the, uh, the especially the adult males are just out there waiting for their waiting to get fed. <laughs> and you can't tell me they can't hunt for themselves because like there's these you know, independent, independent males, males that, yeah. that do it just fine. Right. Well, and we don't see that, um, survival relationship where if a male bigs loses their mom, right. That they pass away the way we see with, you know, Southern residents. So I think they absolutely can fend for themselves. <laughs> choose not but to. if mom's there, right. You know, mom, make me dinner. Exactly. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, going, going home for the weekend and bring your laundry and, just have mom take care of you. Make some bagel bites. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's move on and talk about some of the uh, results of this the, and and interpretations of this paper. Yeah, yeah. So last you know last episode we talked with Jared Towers um, from Basitology about the recent publication on the type D orcas and their kind of low genetic diversity, um, but. Late last month, another paper was published um, in, I think it was Nature, Ecology, and Evolution called Inbreeding Depression Explains Killer Whale Population Dynamics. And those researchers were focused on killer whale populations, you know, here, uh, kind of in the eastern North Pacific. And a lot of that kind of specifically focused on on the southern resident killer whales. So, uh, Monica, you gave a great presentation the other day kind of explaining this paper. Um, so if you don't mind, one, thanks for joining us again. And two, I'll hand it over to you. Kind of tell us a little bit about what, what the paper was saying. Yeah, I'll preface this by saying I'm not part of this study. Um, I just dove into this paper, um, as I do with any paper on the Southern residents to try and understand it. And I'm also not a geneticist, though I did take a few genetics classes. But I think even without that, while the, the methods on some of these papers can be really hard to delve into, I think the, the take-home messages and kind of the overall <clears throat> research is still really important and really understandable. And so this um, study was all about inbreeding depression and inbreeding depression is defined as reduced biological fitness that results from breeding between related individuals. So we may carry copies of genes that are not beneficial to our survival, but when we breed with relatives, those genes are more likely to be expressed. And this is a pretty common concept in biology, although um, with wild populations of, of animals especially, it's been very much theoretical. It's something that's studied more in captive populations and in agriculture. So this study was a unique opportunity in that they have so many genetic samples from, in this case, 100 southern resident killer whales, both living and deceased. 
Um, and they can, you know, test some of these genetics theories um, in this living population where we have um, samples from all these different individuals and we know the relationships between these individuals. And the real take-home message from this paper, uh, their primary finding was that both males and females um, were less likely to reach age 40 if they have a higher inbreeding coefficient, so are the product of a crossbreeding between related individuals. And while each year to year, the chance of survival, you know, didn't decrease that much, uh, they said that for females um, with a high inbreeding coefficient, we're 64% less likely to reach age 40, and for males up to 78% less likely to reach age 40. So their big conclusion was that uh, southern resident killer whales and their lack of population recovery is due in at least in part to this uh, genetic uh, lack of genetic diversity that they have. Um, and in particular, lack of genetic diversity compared to other populations in the Northeast Pacific, including offshores, uh, the big killer whales, and northern and Alaska resident killer whales, which have all been uh, increasing in population. It's fascinating. Yeah, there's there's so much to un unpack in, <laughs> yeah. in, in this. Um, you know, and I'll jump jump in here because I think the paper mentions this, and we just talked about it was the removal of so many killer whales uh, from the southern resident population during the marine park captures, and the long term impacts that we may be seeing now in their genetic diversity. Yeah, one thing that can lead to inbreeding depression is a population bottleneck where you have fewer breeding individuals in the population. And while all populations were potentially, you know, affected by the live captures, you know, we know Northern residents and big killer whales were removed as well. The Southern residents were most strongly impacted, um, you know, with up to maybe a third of their population either removed or killed during the capture era. And it essentially removed almost an entire breeding generation. And so we have already small killer whale population sizes in this region and then we put additional pressure on this, you know, smallest of the populations um, has potentially exacerbated the inbreeding problem uh, for for these whales. Well, and the other thing that that jumps out at me, I mean, to to some degree, I mean, we're dealing with all these different populations that are all relatively small, not a, not quite as small, I think, as the southern residents are. are probably one of the smaller ones, especially now. Um, but it, it's just interesting to juxtapose this with the, the uh, last week's conversation or last episode's conversation with Jared Towers on the type Ds who seem to be even more inbred, um, hit a bottleneck a lot, much longer ago. And we don't, thing or Jared's take was he doesn't think that it's nece that is necessarily impacting their population um which may give us some hope as well for the southern residents yeah super interesting to have these papers come out back to back and kind of t telling potentially different stories um of course we know so little about type d killer whales we don't know much about their population size or population trajectory but the genetic evidence does suggest that they've been you know, highly inbred and had this high, um, what they call inbreeding coefficient for a long time and seemingly doing okay. The concern with the Southern residents by comparison is that we know um, from this study that it is linked to reduced survival. So there's um, 
you know, we're not just saying, oh, they have these higher inbreeding coefficients, but with the Southern resident population specifically, we're seeing that there is a, you know, potential direct um, relationship between that and the population decline. And there, there are other factors as well that are leading to their population decline um, that just compound this. Absolutely. This is by no means saying, you know, that this is the reason that they haven't recovered. Um, it's also not saying that they don't have the potential to recover, but it's just kind of another piece of the puzzle and another hurdle that, that they're facing um, that they're maybe at a little bit more of a disadvantage um, than some other populations that have greater genetic diversity. So with, with the inbreeding and the low um, genetic diversity, what what is a fix for that? How can that, is, is there a way to, to reduce that impact or increase their genetic diversity? Yeah, it's, it's not really something we have any control over, right? We can't set up a cross population <laughs> killer whale a dating, dating program. program. Or, yeah, yeah. Exactly. O- open bar, disco. <laughs> Tinder for whales. Yeah. Um, but if there are any outbreeding events with other populations, even if they are rare, that sort of injection of new genetic material to the population can make a big difference, even if it doesn't occur very often. And they do say in this paper, there's no evidence of that within the last one to two generations, but that doesn't mean that it never occurs. And they actually um, alluded to possibly having some evidence of uh, crossbreeding between Northern residents and Alaskan resident killer whales. Um, and it's one of the topics that they want to investigate further is as you sample more of the population, you may be able to get a sense of um, if and how often these type of crossbreeding events occur. And if something like that were to happen with a southern resident killer whale, it could really help lower these inbreeding coefficients over time across the entire population. And correct me if I'm wrong, and man, can I be wrong, but um, I recall either a talk, I think it was a talk years ago, that there was one Southern resident um, that the paternity suggested that it might have not been a Southern resident. Did that ever get resolved? Like, do we know anything more? Do you remember that or am I just making that up in my head? I remember that theory floating around um, and there's, you know, with... With genetics, it's kind of the more data we gather, the more we learn. And sometimes we end up throwing out some of the things that we thought we knew before. Um, So I don't think that's been substantiated. I think there was maybe a question of that at one point, but I haven't seen anything to suggest that that was the case. And then their their explicit claim in this paper that they have not seen it within the last two generations makes me think um, there's no known outbreeding within the Southern residents. But this paper did have some interesting paternity results. Um, that we hadn't seen before. It did, yeah. For those of us who know these whales as individuals, it's super interesting to dive into the supplemental information that's also published alongside these papers because it reveals um, some of the you know, crossbreedings that did occur and, and paternity results, which we all find super interesting. And there had been two previous uh, papers that had looked at Southern resident killer whale genetics and, and inbreeding, um, both published in 2011 and uh, 2018. And one of those papers had suggested, for example, that uh, J1 might be the offspring of L45. Um, and that now has been removed from their updated pedigree in this paper. Um, Interesting. Suggesting that you know, maybe that was, you know, that wasn't something they confirmed at that point. It was just a possibility, but that seems like that has now been walked back a little bit. I think there, there was a lot of info, uh, interesting info in the, in the paternity and the the supplemental and info. 
And I think one of the things I'd love to get your take on, because I have always assumed, and I think it's just a, an intuitive assumption to make that crossbreeding between J's and K's or J's and L's or crossbreeding between pods is better. Is, is better because it would be better for genetic diversity and that, you know, we're seeing the, the three pods spending less and less time together. And, and it, we're assuming that that's not good for their genetic diversity and breeding. But there's some info in this in the supplemental info that contradicts that. Yeah, it all depends on the relationship between the parents, right? And they could be half siblings from different pods. Right. That if they then mate still will have, you know, relatively inbred offspring. So we have um Examples of uh, whales like J51, who this study shares, um, was fathered by K26. So J51 would be the offspring then of J41 and K26. Yet he's among uh, the 10 southern resident killer whales with the highest inbreeding coefficient. So here's an example of a, a crossbreeding between pods that still resulted in a high individual inbreeding coefficient. But we have um, other known you know relationships that maybe don't result in this higher off um inbreeding coefficient so for example we know that uh j1 and j28 were the parents of j46 and so a father-daughter breeding but uh, she is not among the most inbred individuals um despite being the offspring of known (laughs) relatives within the same pod so we really um can't say just based on who the parents are, who the most inbred individuals are. Um, they really have to look at the entire genome and um, what they call these runs of homozygosity, which sort of indicate uh, the level of inbreeding and sort of the historic relationship between, you know, the genetic lines that resulted in that individual. Yeah, and I I think what also was interesting about the top 10 highest, um, you know, individuals with the highest in- inbreeding coefficient um, was L25 for me. Um, so here's a whale that's, you know, was born before these, this capture era, you know, we're estimating what 1928, I think is the estimate for her birth year, but she was on the, on the list of top 10. That's the one that I really circled as well, because, um, because of the fact that she preceded the capture era, that really suggests to me that perhaps the Southern residents have had this higher inbreeding coefficient for longer, um, that it's not, simply a result of the capture era, which we know that resident killer whale populations have pretty small breeding populations anyway. Um, so yeah, interesting for sure. Um, they they do this comparison between um, the Southern residents and primarily the Alaskan residents because they, they didn't have many Northern resident killer whale samples in here. And um, the Southern residents with the lowest inbreeding coefficient are on par with kind of the Alaskan resident killer whales, which has been an increasing population. Um, Another result from the study said, well, if all the Southern residents had sort of that lower inbreeding coefficient on par with Alaskan residents, what would happen over the next 100 years? And their modeling shows that the population would be likely to increase. Whereas if all the Southern residents had these higher inbreeding coefficients of, you know, the more inbred individuals like J42 and, and J51, um, that the population, all all other factors being held the same, would be likely to continue to decline over the next 100 years. So, again, that that heightened overall inbreeding coefficient is is playing a role. Um, 
And even though it's sometimes the numbers are pretty slight compared to the Alaskan population, it seems to be enough to lead to this different population trajectory. And it, you know, it's all, it's all fascinating and just makes me realize that the more we find out, the less we really know, because we, <laughs> yeah. we really don't know how, well, like with the type D's, how, if they're so inbred, our intuition is like, well, their population must be doing horribly, but they, we can see that they've been inbred for, for a long period of time. Right. Um, and on the other side of this is we can do this modeling of their population of what will happen if the genetics do this or the diversity does that. But the bottom line is without, without large wild Chinook and rewilding rivers, their population trajectory is not going to increase regardless. They could go out breeding all they want without food. Their, their trajectory is going to continue to decline. Yeah. It comes down to the, the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and if we look at the southern resident killer whale population in the 1990s, the inbreeding coefficients were more or less the same, but the population was increasing. So they're certainly capable of having an increased population, but the difference between the 1990s and today is the environmental factors of, mm -hmm. of what they were dealing with. There were more fish then. Um, Bigger fish. Bigger fish. Yep. Yeah, I think uh, and it would be great to get, get some people on an episode talking about salmon because I think one of the things that we overlook sometimes is it's not just the number of fish, but it really comes down to their size. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the take home from this, you know, Noah had a scientific briefing on this paper. And so we were all really interested to hear what's their messaging around this because Noah scientists were, you know, participants in this research. Are they, are they trying to write off the Southern resident killer whales, you know, by saying, oh, they're genetically doomed, but that is not at all the case. Um, the scientists involved and the managers that are responsible for, you know, trying to recover this population all really had the same message that this is another piece of information that we need to consider, but that it just, you know, further underscores the importance of doing all the other things that we can to help them recover. Um, so nobody is saying this is, you know, this is it for the Southern residents. This is just another hurdle that they face and further underscores the importance of making sure that they have enough food so that this, you know, whatever genetically is leading to the decreased survival um, that comes along with inbreeding is supported by them at least having enough to eat to increase chance of survival. Right. I mean, the, the more food they get, the more they will reproduce and the more they reproduce and the more viable calves that, that come out will help, you know, hopefully increase some of the, the genetic diversity and they get through this bottleneck and it doesn't continue to impact them. Yeah. One thing we don't know at this point is what specifically, you know, what genes are leading to this reduced survival? Is it something related to the immune system or something related to fertility or, or what is it? You know, we don't have that level of genetic knowledge yet, but we know that things like having enough to eat help boost your immune system and, you know, make you more likely to have successful pregnancies and, and that sort of thing. So we can support them in other ways to maybe help overcome whatever is going on among these inbred individuals that is making them less likely to survive. It's, it's going to be interesting to, to see what the follow-ups are with in terms of genetic studies and, and how much more we're, we're able to learn. It, it's going to be fascinating. And I think each step of the way, it's going to be the same thing. It's like, okay, now we know this, but now we don't know all this. 
Well, we don't know this and I have so many more questions now. <laughs> I really hope, you know, as we continue doing these comparisons with other populations, I'm really hoping that one piece that comes out of this down the road is some paternity insights on the big killer whales because... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right? We have... So much speculation and we know nothing at this point. So speaking of the Bigs Killer Whales, one of the things that was in this paper that literally sent my jaw to the floor um, was the uh, population size estimates that, right. that were in this paper. And that I think it was somewhere around 100 generations ago that the Bigs may have had three to 4,000 breeding whales. Yeah, so what they did is <laughs> like they... what? <laughs> yeah. They look at um, effective population size, which basically means how many individuals in the population are breeding, and that's that's smaller than the total population right. size. But doing, you know, genetics and their mathematics, they can kind of project back in time what, what may have happened. And the resident killer whale populations, you know, were larger um, in the past, but still relatively small. But they found this you know, kind of remarkable result that among the big killer whales, it looked like the population may have been many thousands of individuals larger than today, um, which is possible. Um, another explanation for it is that maybe there was more crossbreeding um, between bigs and other populations at that time, making it look like it was kind of a larger functional breeding population, even if it wasn't all big killer whales. But that to me is kind of in contrast with what we've heard before about the bigs being more genetically distinct than other right. populations. So I think there's, a, again, a lot of unknowns there, but uh, definitely suggests that there were some interesting things going on <laughs> in the big killer whale population one way or another, as, as recently as what they're calling, you know, 100 killer whale generations ago, which is not that long, less than a thousand years, I think. Right. I, I just can't even imagine. I mean, it, it's amazing to see their population today and how big it's getting and how fast it's growing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't think when this baby boom started, it was like 2012. Um, and, and, you know, we've really started to get in, in tune with that. I don't think anybody has ex had expected it was still going to be going on in 2023. And yet, you know, in the last week or so, we've seen two new two new calves and have, you know, had many in the last year. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, it, I guess it, uh, on the flip side of, of what we're talking about with Southern residents is it shows what is possible when you have uh, a very abundant supply right. of food. And that's what we talk, you know, we talk, or I, you know, I know you do Jeff, cause I've heard you talk about it. Um, and I know Monica, you talk about it as well as like, we have these two very different population trajectories with whales that use the same area and the ones that are doing well are here more often. They have higher toxin levels, um, you know, because they feed higher on the, on the trophic level. Um, and they're doing exceedingly well for a killer whale population in, in this day and age. And it's, it's because of that. It's because they have enough food to eat. I think, I think they're doing exceedingly well for, you know, any, well, any population most populations for these days, right? any kind of wild animal. They're doing, you know, they're doing phenomenally well. Yeah. So it, it is fascinating to to see the juxtaposition of, of the two populations. Um, and we, you know, again, we've been seeing so many killer whales out there, uh, bigs especially. Um, and Monica, what is what what's upcoming for Orca Behavior Institute this uh, this field season? 
Well, it's it's tough to predict what's going to happen in the field, right? It seems like we have some surprises every year. Um, we had kind of gotten used to not having the southern residents around in the spring, and now J-Pods may be sticking around at least later than usual, so we're hoping to continue seeing them. Um, an exciting development for us is we're uh, in the process of getting a new hydrophone installed in uh, North San Juan Channel that will be live streaming on the Orca Sound hydrophone network. Um, so we're super excited to see what sort of acoustic range it has from that location and, and what kind of things we're picking up on that hydrophone, especially it's just been a big super highway, it seems like, over the last couple <laughs> yeah, of weeks. It's been yeah. hard not to have that hydrophone online yet, but but we will see. And then... Um, on the research side of things, we're working on uh, crunching a lot of our uh, behavioral data on on both populations of killer whales and seeing what kind of our first few years of research might reveal. So lots of exciting stuff ahead. That's awesome. That's awesome. And and you're going to be uh, be out in, in, on the water a bit this this summer. Yep, that's the plan. We plan to get our boat back in the water here in the next couple of days and and see what the season has in store for us. We'll definitely have to have you back on at the end of your, your field season and, and see what, what kind of stuff you've come up with. Um, it's always, always great to have you on. It's always great to be here. Fun to chat with you guys. And we're going to be, uh, we're running tours every day with Maya's Legacy Whale Watching. And we have a special after the breach photo workshop coming up this fall. Uh, if you are interested in, in joining us, definitely reach out. Uh, Sarah has the dates for us. Yeah, it's going to be September 23rd and 24th, a Saturday and Sunday. And people can sign up for both days. They can sign up for one day. It'll be fully catered. Um, but we're going to go out for, you know, between six and eight hours. Jeff and I like to run on the longer end of things and uh, see what we can find out there. And, and that time of year is just amazing. Um, you know, big killer whales for sure, but huge aggregations of humpback whales as well. Yeah, always uh, a potential at that time of year where we get these aggregations of 50, 70 plus humpbacks uh, feeding in uh, the, the same area. And you just, it's, it's so hard to imagine and describe, but I mean, blows as far as you can see and, and just humpbacks everywhere in, uh, in some glassy water. Always a chance of seeing killer whales at that time of year as well. We usually have some really nice weather days. Yeah, um, it's our well. favorite month. So yeah, these are going to be all day tours uh, with Sarah and I, and uh, some some catering and some photo instruction and ID instruction. Yep. Uh, so if you're interested, send us an email uh, to after the breach podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can hit us up on Instagram at after the breach. And uh, <laughs> and we'll talk to you soon. Stay, stay safe stay out there. Stay safe out there. <laughs>